Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And this week, our guest is Dr. Susan Friedman. Susan is helping us celebrate the milestone of our 150th Equosity episode. So last week, we began with part one of our conversation. I could have given all of you the treat of posting our conversation all as one long podcast, but it would have been a very long podcast indeed. We literally talked away the afternoon. So I'm going to break the conversation up into smaller segments, which means our celebration will extend over several weeks. That's all right. 150 episodes is a milestone that is worth celebrating, and it's worth letting that celebration continue on for a bit. So last week, we jumped right in, and I never really introduced Susan. I suspect most of you already know her. Susan is uh, just wonderfully generous, sharing her time and expertise. She's been a frequent guest on this podcast, and we've done several webinars with Susan, and she's also a frequent guest on many other podcasts. Susan is a now-retired psychology professor. She taught at Utah State University. She began her career working with out-of-control teenagers, and then transferred her skills to captive and companion animals. She consults at zoos around the world. Susan is a member of the Clicker Expo faculty. If you've seen Susan present at conferences, you know that when you see her name on a conference schedule, her talks are always one of the ones that you make a point of attending. Susan runs her very popular online course, LLA, which stands for Living and Learning with Animals for Professionals. And you can find her through her website and her Facebook group, Behavior Works. I could go on and on for quite a long time with this introduction, but instead, I'll jump us back into the conversation. Last week, we ended with a question. Dominique asked us, If we got a new animal, what would we do differently? So enjoy the discussion. This question prompted. So what would you do differently? If you had a new animal compared to what you've done in the past, are there things you would change? Things you would look at differently, strategies you would not use anymore and would rather use something else? So Susan, you've gotten a dog fairly recently. So how yeah, you- I think really where that question shines for my life is with the parrots. Because okay. when I first got my first parrot, it was I came into a companion parrot culture of punishment. It was very much like the dog punishment world, the Caesar Milan um iconic Caesar Milan approach to, you know, make them, break them. Um, And 
it was really surprising to me. I was unprepared for that because my kids were around 10 and 13. I had already, um, you know, done my professional work with children and then been able to expand further with my own children and then got these parrots and was reading everything there was to be read in the popular literature. There was no research literature and there still isn't much. Um, and it was all about if you ask that bird, if you tell that, command that bird to step onto your hand, come hell or high water. That's a phrase I haven't used in 20 years, right? Come hell or high water, do not accept anything but that bird ending up on your hand. Wow. And so one of my birds, the African gray, the first, really the first one, um, who's now been here over 20 years, still shows the residual distrust of what even my hand might mean to him at any particular time. So that if I move too quickly, he'll lunge to bite. And um, so I've really, of course, that's when I started writing. That was kind of the beginning of my work with non-human learners um, was seeing this, you know, this monsoon, this incredible storm of dominance and misunderstanding by these lay experts and um, slowly dipping my toe into writing that there are other ways to work with animals. And yet there I was trying out what I was reading about. So that lesson about um, authoritarianism is really a huge one in my life. And it wasn't until the great Carl Cheney, a notable behavior analyst who's in my town and we meet every week for dinner. So I continue to learn from him. I'm so fortunate. Um, I met him in the pet store after being in Africa for five years. So I hadn't seen him all that time. I came back, got a parrot, met him in the pet store. And I said to him, well, you know, parrots are different. And I remember him looking at me very strangely, like I had just <laughs> dropped in from Mars. And he said to me, that's odd. I wonder why parrots would be different than any other species on this planet. And he picked up his pinky mice for a snake and he walked out and I was left there with this mouth on the floor. And that's when it all just came rushing in was that I had somehow set aside my knowledge of behavior analysis, working with very extremely difficult children. So I had a lot of practice in how to not punish, to meet goals and to teach well. And yet in the face of these lay authorities, mm. given a species I had never worked with, I wasn't able to cross that divide mm. the way I am now. Every month I have occasion to say, well, that's funny. Why would that giraffe be any different than any other animal on this planet? Well, that's funny. Why would that ringtail lemur be any different than any other animal on this planet? So, yeah, you know, we are taught, we're reinforced for and valued for the degree to which we can accommodate and fall in line, be good citizens to authority. And 
for me, it was this big experience to realize that I had information that I had, I had assumed to these lay experts until Cheney and this African gray woke me up. And that's in his behavioral history now being forced onto my hand. And you can see that in him versus the other birds who did not have that behavioral history. So that's quite an interesting question is what would you do differently? And my answer in short is I would bring my knowledge of the science of behavior change to every single organism and every single situation and every single um, airline person on the phone and every single Walmart cashier who I see is so tired and is having a hard time breathing under the mask. And yeah, to, I mean, it really becomes part of who you are. It is a lifestyle, a worldview. And I, and I didn't pass that test at the first opportunity about 25 years ago. How about you, Alex? I'm thinking of uh, right now, Michaela Hempen who's been working with uh, with Blondie, the mayor that, that she took on. Blondie was a cribber and she was doing a research project on cribbing and then the owner said he was gonna sell her and Michaela hadn't intended to get a third horse, but you know, there she is with this horse. And Blondie is, uh, she was probably started under saddle when she was two she was a reigning horse. The training was very traditional. It was very harsh. She was, at the time that Michaela first met her, she was living in a very impoverished environment. I mean, she had no turnout. Her world consisted of a stall with a small run-out area. And the run-out area was lined with uh, electric wire to keep her from cribbing. So a very impoverished environment. And she's a very typical, very typical crossover horse, meaning that in many aspects of her behavior, she's very shut down emotionally. Her previous owner would have said that she was very well-trained. He could get on and ride. He could do all kinds of things. But Michaela, who is a really thoughtful trainer and who's working very consistently and using, taking baselines and really following good scientific procedures, she is acknowledging and seeing all the places where Blondie is saying, no, no, I don't want the saddle put on my back. No, I don't want to take the bit. No, I don't want, no, I don't want. And instead of having it forced on her, where Blondie just has learned to shut down and take it, Michaela is going through a very systematic training procedure for all of those things where she encounters a no. And she's gonna end up with just this phenomenal horse who is blooming and blossoming. And what's so interesting is that when she first started working with Blondie, she always talked about her two horses and then Blondie. And she said, Blondie was not for her a terribly likable or interesting horse in her shut down right. state. And now she's just 
really, really enjoying her more and more and more. But it also makes me think, you know, going back to some of the things we, we were talking about a few minutes ago, that, you know, like with that German shepherd and the use of punishment, that had some effect on that dog's the behavior that that dog currently presents. Just as with your African gray, the procedures that you did 20 years ago are still reverberating through his life. I know that from, from Robin. This is one of those things I say, you know, thank goodness our horses live as long as they live because we love them deeply. But on the other hand, when I look at people like Kay Lawrence, she's had like three or four generations of dogs yeah. in the time that I've had one, gen you know, so, so all of my training mistakes, it's like an archaeological dig. Right. My horses are truly like an archaeological dig. You want to see what I was thinking about in 1995? Robin, <laughs> come show people, you know, right? because uh, he's still, he can, he's still there. Thank goodness. But yeah, I, I, so many people who have horses, have horses that are shut down. They don't actually know what horses are like. They know what a horse that has been shut down through punishment is like, but they don't know what it's like to have a horse who enthusiastically runs to the gate to come and greet you. And many people are intimidated by that enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that the early lessons in the that I teach in the clicker training are structured the way that they are is I don't want the very thing that I find so joyful about clicker training to be the thing that puts somebody off, namely the enthusiasm right. that an individual can have when learning makes sense, when the teaching makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, with that German Shepherd, it's it's not just, uh, well, you know, he could have been a different dog if you trained him in a different way. But would that person have been able to cope with that different dog? Mm -hmm. Would he have found yeah. it intimidating or, you know, in some way uh, overwhelming um, to have a dog that is an enthusiastic learner and... That has choice. As a matter of fact, you know, because this dog is, 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 this friend is coming to my house pretty regularly. And of course, I can't help myself. You know, I am who I am. And so I'm starting to give him some treats, but I'm really careful because I don't want to be responsible for anything that I, I don't want to be blamed for any. You know, if that, and I can see, you know, I, I can see the dog understands that he, because he didn't even know he could get treats with his behavior. You know, in the beginning, he, he, it wasn't a concept for him to do something to get the treat. And so, but now, and it's, it doesn't take very long for an animal to understand this, right? And now I know he doesn't even understand the click, but he understands that his behavior gets him treats. He understood that before even the click, you know, but 
but I'm I'm I want to be very careful because I don't want to to be blamed for anything later on and it's not my dog. So that's that's like me running down the supermarket aisle to talk to the parent. <laughs> it's the same story, just a different species. But you know, I think for me that if 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 I had another dog, the big and I'm I'm more less maybe big picture, but I would want more clarity when in everything I do um, for the animal, because, you know, the mistakes I've made uh, with my animals, they always boil down to, this isn't clear for the animal. I'll give you an example. Um, You know, sometimes I'm in my mind, I'm treating my animal for long duration, good behavior. Okay. And sometimes I think that for them, it's just a free treat. You know, what? And so free treats for me are like a double, uh, how do you say in English, a sword, a double edged sword? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because what happens with, I think, and this is part of, you know, if I had another dog, I would have to think about this, research this. Remember, Alex, I told you the other day, I, I was, I looked at, at Paul Chance's book, because every time I have a question, Susan, I do what you said, I go to the textbook, and I looked in, in Chini, and I look in Paul Chance, because I was looking at expectations. I wanted to see if there was any research on when an animal expects something and something else happens, right. I didn't find anything. So maybe, maybe look today. Under, yeah, look under contrast effect. Oh, okay. Typically, when you don't find what you're looking for, it's having the wrong keyword. So yeah, it's yeah. great yeah. to come together and be able to share ideas about where you, what word okay. you might use. Yeah. Contrast effect. That's mm-hmm. good. Just open a new little path for me. Something so, to munch on. So now we should ask Susan what that is. What? The contrast yeah. effect? Yes. Yeah, oh, I'd okay. need to read up to polish on that. But it's when you go from a high rate of reinforcement to a low rate or the reverse has predictable outcomes on behavior like other schedules of reinforcement do. And would this so, apply to, let's say you expected a steak and you get a kibble, would you still, would that still be under the umbrella of contrast effect? I think it would with the small tweak that expectation would need to be operationalized behaviorally because I don't well, know. Well, I spit, if I, if you gave me a steak, I would swallow it happily. If you give me a kibble, I spit it out. Right. And we could call that expectation, but we could also call that not liking kibble liking steak more. I mean, there are lots of different labels we can use. Yeah. So as always, expectation is is, uh, just a word we use to communicate uh, a change in a schedule. And then we see fallout from that. So take a look and then maybe we can do another podcast where we all brush up on that and then connect the dots to the training that we're doing. Yeah, so back to the free treats. Mm Mm-hmm. Because for me, what what it creates, the free treats, and what I've seen, and this may not be right, um, and I used to not worry about free treats too much because I used to think, well, life is good, you know, there's abundance, and, um, you know, she's been lying there a long time, and I'm just giving her a treat, and it's good. But 
I find that the, the, the other side of this is that the dog never relaxes because he's always, you know, thinking, maybe I'm going to get a treat. And I want the dog to be able to, to relax and not be waiting for a free treat that may come. And to me, I think in my mind that there is a contingency, that there is duration that I'm rewarding. But I think if I were in their shoes, maybe I would not know what did I do to earn this. And so yeah. free treats or, or, this, or this lack of clarity, I would need to rethink before I get another dog, mm -hmm. to get the dog of my dream. Do you have any thoughts on that? Free treats and long duration rewarding? It, it leads me to ask one of the probably top three questions in my mind that are most valuable. And that is, how would I know? So how would I know what a dog expects? People often misinterpret that I'm being cheeky, mechanistic, scanarian, Reader's Digest version, um, and saying dogs don't have expectations. Um, when what I'm really asking for is that operationalization. So how would I know that the dog understands the contingency of duration of staying in a, on, on a mat, let's say? And if I think that I'm building long duration, what would I need to see the dog do? What would be the observable change in the environment that would indicate to me that the dog experienced the contingency that I was delivering and um, not some other contingency. It's a very useful question. And it's, it's, I always have to remind people, I don't say that cheekily. I say, really, how would we know? And then let's set up the environment to give us that information. I'll give you an example with a rhino that I had the privilege to um, help with. Uh, they, the rhino wouldn't stay up in the visitor viewing area it kept going back down to the barn. So the trainers were shaping closer and closer to the viewing area. And when he would balk, they would relax criterion and then split the approximations or strengthen their reinforcers, bagels with peanut butter stuck on the walls. I mean, this was a divine program. <laughs> And um, it, it was a program that I probably would have gotten to the kindergarten classroom if they had done that for me, you know, but they um, would get to a certain point or a certain number of seconds up there. And when the free food or the food uh, was consumed, boom, right back to the barn. So I asked them that question is, let's turn this on its head. If I wanted to teach the rhino to go up and come right back down, how would I do it? And I left that with them. And when we met again, they had the answer that I was thinking of, which is I would train it just as they trained it. I would take it up to the point they had taken it and then relax criterion and then come back up to the point they had taken it and then relax criterion. So it's very possible from the rhino's point of view that the um, way to control the peanut buttered bagels 
and other fruits and vegetables was to go to a point and turn back, go to a point and turn back. And if that's what we wanted, we would train it in a very similar way. And um, so I think that question is a good one, is that we, fortunately or not, we, we need observable measures to be able to answer the questions we have, like what is learned? How is it best taught? How would I know how it's best taught? You know? That, that makes me think of the table games, you know, Portal or the original K. Lawrence's Janabacab, and Kay would talk about puzzle moments, you know, where you've set, you've set up a series of approximations, your learner is successful, you are able to click and reinforce on a consistent basis, it looks like everything is going great, but the question is, is the rule that your learner is following the same rule that you're following? And how right. would you, yeah, how would you got, know? How would you know? And I remember Kay and I, she was, we were at an airport and she brought out her, her Geneva cab kit and was uh, setting up a puzzle for me. And I was very successful. And smoke was coming out of Kay's ears because <laughs> it was clear that, that the rule that I was following was working, but only up to a point. It wasn't what she wanted me to be doing. Right. But the rule was working for me. The rule was working for the rhino. It is exactly so. It is such an interesting and really a fun realization that you think you're communicating, but what's being understood are really different rules. I had a three-year-old neighbor who would visit me every day when I'd come back in my doctoral program sunny bunny and she said to me one day when i was wearing a gold conch shell on a necklace um is that real and i i said well yes it is thinking she wants to know if it's real 14 karat gold <laughs> and she said that's so funny because i've never seen such a shiny shell on the beach mm-hmm. when she asked is, is it real she meant a real shell shell yes and when I heard, is it real? I thought she meant real gold. I have never forgotten that. So how would we know? We have to keep testing whether or not what we're intending to communicate is being conveyed. So you have, what did they do with the rhino? How did they change their strategy? Well, what we did was we had confidence in the rhino. We closed a gate. When he got up to the top, we closed one gate behind him and we implemented a multifaceted plan, which applied behavior analysts are famous for. I'm reminding myself and everyone, we were not doing research, we were teaching. So we threw everything we had into the package. We closed a gate behind him. And then if he showed any of the behaviors of discomfort, which had to be operationalized and agreed upon, talked a lot about them, would be ears out, tail straight out, uh, huffing, chuffing sound, and moving quickly, that they would first call him over to the training area and see if they could break that spiral of what we may call anxiety or discomfort with training for positive outcomes. And then if that didn't work, 
they would open up one gate and let him escape down one section and leave him there for five minutes and see if he could calm down himself, which was something he had not learned to do, I would hypothesize. And if they waited five minutes and that had to be negotiated, I started with 15 and they said, no, one minute. And I said, okay, three. And, you know, I mean, we had to go back to negotiate all the facets of the program because they were so dedicated to helping this animal be comfortable as absolutely much of every day as possible. Um, if he didn't calm down and start investigating um, and doing other behaviors that we would call calm, um, then they would open that second gate and let him go down to the barn. And what we found is immediately he started going up. Um, he would very often be distracted and change his outlook by the training opportunities. He had incredible relationships with the trainers. By that, I mean, when they would call him from way far down at the barn, he'd come running up to be with them. And, um, and then, yeah, didn't need to use that gate at all. He just stayed longer and longer. So I actually have that data and we've been wanting to publish that um, to show the misunderstanding or at least the hypothesized misunderstanding between shaping and relaxing criterion over and over again, conveying that it was a real shell, not real jewelry. <laughs> and, um, and then the use of this package kind of treatment where we use training for positive reinforcement, we use some negative reinforcement, we had very clear criterion to not go over what we identified as a level of humane, you know, humane treatment. Um, and I'm probably forgetting some other components, but each of these components was laid out very, very carefully and then assembled. And um, it wasn't more than two days that he started, I was getting texts. I was still working at the university and I was get a text saying, Junbei stayed up there for 45 minutes. Junbei stayed up there for an hour and a half. And every day, it just, until we got to eight hours. So you, you had the gate that would half open if he showed signs that he wanted out. After and five the, minutes. After five minutes and with all the enrichment and the opportunities on the up side there. that we wanted him in. Mm -hmm. And the gate would open completely if he showed relaxation. Did I no. get that? No. What no. was that? When would the gate open completely? The gate would open completely when he sustained uncomfortable behaviors for a certain short amount of time. Versus so we reinforced his power to say, I don't want to be here. Okay. And as is often the case, when you give animals the power to open the yep. gate based on their uncomfortable behavior. Mm -hmm. Once they have control over the exit, they choose to use the exit less and less because right. there were very powerful reinforcers on top. So this was which, not- Which makes people go crazy in the traditional world because they will say you are absolutely reinforcing um, all the undesired emotional behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this, I know I have seen this 
to be true what you're saying, mm -hmm. that on the contrary, if you give them uh, control over what stresses them, the intensity will start diminishing? Absolutely. And I think part of the confusion around this, allowing animals to say no and letting them leave at a certain criterion that is hopefully a low criterion so they don't have to have a full-blown panic attack, that part of the confusion is that is not all we did. So there was the opportunity to train with very favorite people. There was a lot of enrichment, a mud wallow, a empty plastic barrel on a chain that he could beat up. And so when he chose to leave, he gained control to leave, which was important apparently, but he also lost all the opportunity up on the hill. Mm -hmm. So very often I think people don't have the patience <clears throat> to listen to the whole weave that we put together. And that means that our job as disseminators is to be sure that we set the antecedents up to get that sustained listening and then reinforce their patience for us to be able to tell the whole story. So I think if all you do is let them go out, then that might not work as well. It's not magic, right? Or science is magic. However you want to express that is the magic of science. Um, there's got to be reasons to stay and, yeah, sensitive uh, changes in the environment based on that animal's behavior. I'll pull it up while we're talking and re refresh my memory of all the different facets of this program. Um, opening the gate back to the barn was just one. And um, I mean, it was an immediate change. And it may have just been, you know, always with uncomfortable behavior, People tend to assume that, again, it's inside the animal, they are in uh, distress. But that is one important hypothesis that I always have on the board right next to the other important hypothesis is that we've inadvertently trained that uncomfortable behavior. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at, you know, how it, what is the animal trying to communicate to us? Is it to get out? Or do they think that, you know, I'm working with another, with a giraffe um, to come up to his block and curl a hoof for uh, voluntary hoof work. And um, he puts his foot on and then dances off. And then they ask for something easier. Touch my finger with your tongue. And then they ask for him to come onto the block and he goes off and they ask for something easier, to, right? And so yeah. I explained to them, it might be that the block is uncomfortable and we need to get x-rays on that supporting foot and make sure that that's healthy, that we're asking what is reasonable to ask. But also on the board is that every time you lower criterion and reinforce something easy, like a tongue flick for a giraffe, um, that you might be saying, come on, come off, flick your tongue, come on, come off, flick your tongue, you know, those chains that we've all experienced. Yeah. So that really, I think what's intriguing about teaching people about this for us three and our community is how to deliver this information in a way that they can pick it up and use it, you know, so that they don't feel blamed, they don't feel stupid, they don't feel that you're impatient, how could they miss it? 
you know, but you say, here's the systematic way I think it through. Can you think it through with me this way too? And then slowly but surely, um, as we see them taking on the systematic think through approach, then we can um, fade ourselves as the leader of that approach. And, and then you're left with people who are independent of you, which is of course what we all want as teachers, our students to be independent of us. So you, you, uh, you're, we want the systematic approach and you said that you have the top three questions. So one of the questions was, how would I know? What are the other two questions? Well, I think you said, how would I train this? No? Like, yeah. how would I well, know? I like that. You know, if you see an un, undesired right. behavior, how would, you train that? how would you train it? I really like that one. Yeah. And if that's what you wanted, how would you train it? And almost always it looks exactly like what they did. And then the other question I ask is, well, what's the reinforcer? You know, which is another way of asking, yeah, what's the function of the behavior? What's the outcome that is sustaining this? And another question is, what is the signal? What in the environment is giving the animal the signal that the smartest behavior I can do right now is to run Mm. or to kick, you know, Mm. and of course those signals We've all learned to expand our understanding of cues to not just the specific discriminative stimulus, the cue that signals behavior consequence contingencies, but also the context around us. You know, where are those sneaky white lab coats that we're not even aware of? But from the animal's point of view, it's like I'm dodging white lab coats the minute for the dog, the minute the crate comes out to go to the car, to go to the veterinarian, or whatever it is. Yeah. This is a great stopping point. I'll leave you to chew on what started out as three questions, but turned into four. How would you know? So if you're wanting to assess whether your animal is understanding what you're teaching, how would you know? How would you assess that? The new question that crept into the list of three was, if you wanted to train the unwanted behavior you're getting, how would you do it? Then the next question would be, what are your reinforcers? And last are, what are the signals? What's telling the animal when to perform that behavior? What is it in the environment or in your behavior that is cueing the behavior? So those are really interesting questions to chew on and we'll leave you with them now. Next week, we're going to continue on with this conversation, and we're going to take a very deep dive with Susan into the ABCs of training. So thank you for listening. Stay safe and have fun with your animals. 